Good morning, everyone. Just was thinking earlier, uh, Vic starts our service by quoting from Tim Keller. I'm about to quote from Rag and Bone Man, which, <laughs> which probably tells you everything you need to know about me. But this is Rag and Bone Man, for those who don't know. He, he recently won the Best British Breakthrough Act at this year's Brit Awards. I've been listening to his uh, debut album, Human, which is great, at least I think it is. But one song in particular stands out. It, it stood out the first time I heard it. It still does. And it's a song called Grace. And grace is a word that resonates with us, doesn't it? We hear it and use it a lot at church. I mean, I don't know how many times we've heard it this morning. How many times we've sung it, we've prayed it. We refer to it virtually every week at Rinser. And so discovering grace as the title of a track on a current number one selling album intrigued me. And here are the lyrics from the chorus. In the eyes of a saint, I'm a stranger. We're all trying to find a way. At the death of every darkness, there's a morning. And though we all try, we all try, we're all one step from grace. I'm not entirely sure what Rag and Bone Man or his real name, Rory Graham, don't know what he was or is specifically getting up. You see that line, we're all one step from grace. That, that has just sat with me for weeks. And I love it. I love it. I love that idea. I love that sentiment that grace is right there. It's always closer than we think. Closer than we realize. And this morning, as we turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, and we pick up from the end of verse 3, where we rather abruptly stopped last week, we find ourselves one step from grace. As its beauty and, and its truth dominates the next number of verses after such, in a sense, negativity of the first three verses. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to take a step and to discover more. In, in the first three verses, if you were here last week, you'll know this, but in the first three verses, the Apostle Paul reminded the saints in Ephesus about what they once were. In chapter one, you'll remember that he had confirmed their identity in Christ. He had said they were adopted, they were chosen, they were redeemed, they were sealed, they were secure, they were believers, they were saints. I think there were 11 of those I am statements that we looked at in the first 14 verses of the first chapter as Paul clarified and nailed their identity. And then from verses 15 to 23, Paul assures the saints in Ephesus that he's praying for them. I'm praying that you may know, and then three things you may know, that you may know God more, better that you may know the hope to which you've been called, and that you may know God's power. But at the beginning of chapter 2, he presses rewind 
And he focuses on what they once were. And what they once were was this, dead. Spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins. That was their backstory. But it was not only theirs, it's also ours. And without Christ and apart from God, it's part of everybody's story. It's stark, it's bleak. For some people in our culture today, this idea grates on them. I understand that. But it doesn't alter the reality. And Paul is keen that they, these saints in Ephesus, don't forget what they once were. And as Paul gets them to remember their past state, he points to how they were under the influence, how they once followed, how they were held captive to a trinity of tyrants, the world, the flesh, the devil. And as a result, or part of the fallout of that, the inevitable consequence of that was that they were deserving of wrath. Verse 3. Or they were children of wrath, as it says in some translations, meaning children of God's wrath, his holy, justified, righteous, consistent response to sin. Part and parcel of who God is. So as a result of their deadness in transgressions and sin, which is part of their fallen nature, our fallen nature, it's ingrained Their situation was serious. Their future was dark. It was desolate, as is ours, as is so many people's today, despite their or our reluctance at time to admit it or face up to it. Oh, that's interesting. But then, then we come to the beginning of verse 4. And this is where we stopped rather abruptly last week. Then we come to the beginning of verse 4. And to those two life and death-altering words, but God. Such negativity in the first three verses. Such truth, such reality. But it doesn't stop there. There is a but God. There was for these saints. There was For many of us, and there still is a but God. God has not left it there. He has taken the initiative. God has written so much more into our script. It isn't all negative. It isn't all about what we were. And as Paul begins, but God, he talks about their transition. What is this transition he talks about? From dead to alive. Because that is what they now are. And that is what so many of us here this morning now are. And why? Why is that? The reason is, but God. Or to be more specific, but God's grace that has changed and changes everything. We're all one step from grace. From a whole other reality, a whole other state, a whole other future. 
So I want us to stand and read about it. And it is amazing. Don't just stand yet. It is amazing. But you know something? You'll really only fully appreciate the force of what we're about to read if you've recognized the full force of your situation as described in verses 1 to 3. You see, verses 4 to 10 will only impact you deeply if we have personally, or if you have personally, personally accepted the negativity and the pessimism of the first three verses. If we don't think we're spiritually dead, if we don't think we ever were spiritually dead, if we don't think we ever did follow the ways of the world, the kingdom of the ruler of the air, and the cravings of the flesh, then we're going to struggle to embrace the sheer scale and the profound hope that we're all one step away from. If verses 1 to 3 leave you numb, verses 4 to 10 won't seem like that big a deal. So let's stand. And let's read, and I'm going to read all 10 verses, so let's start with the negativity. What we once were, what these saints once were. Paul writes, beginning at verse 2, it's on the screen, I'll stick the first one up, oh, sorry, uh, there we go, and then Matt will click through the next lot. And you, saints, you, he made you alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind, and so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, and it's negative, it's bleak. But... God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, he's made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Take a seat. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a familiar mantra. And it flows from those verses, particularly verses 4 to 10. But but as Paul moves from problem to solution, from what they were to who they are, he makes it absolutely clear that it's all about God. It's all about who God is and what God has done. That salvation, according to Paul, or being saved as these saints have been, is and always will be entirely attributable to God and his intervention. And if anybody thinks they have done anything to get in on this, or done anything to deserve it, then please listen carefully to what Paul says and to where he begins. But God, who is rich in mercy... Out of the great love with which he loved us. That is the origin of our salvation. 
That is where it comes from. That's where it springs from, out of the great love of God, or if you're using an NIV translation, because of his great love. The reason that anybody, any of us, any of these saints in Ephesus could be spiritually alive again, the reason that we can be saved from wrath is entirely and totally because of God's immense love for us. Now, despite the truth of that, many people struggle to believe it. Struggle to believe the scope and the bigness of God's love. Wrestle with it. We don't get it. We sing about it. I don't, I don't, I don't get it very often. I keep thinking, I've got to earn, I've got to earn God's love. I've got to do certain things, but no. God loves you. We do find it hard to accept, which I think is one of the reasons why in the very next chapter, if you've got a Bible open, you'll know that in chapter 3, Paul specifically prays that the saints in Ephesus would somehow have the power to grasp what? Who can tell me? What did Paul pray that the saints in Ephesus would have the power to grasp? Yeah, how deep, how wide, the length, the height of God's love. You know, sometimes and somehow we need a bit of an energy this much. God loves you this much. God loves you so much, period. Do you believe that? I've always enjoyed reading anything by Brennan Manning. He died a few years ago, and in his last book, his final memoir entitled All is Grace, he asks this poignant question. Do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it? Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you at this moment as you are and not as you should be? Do you? You believe that? Our transition from dead to alive, from lost to found, from children of wrath to adopted sons and daughters is possible because of he has loved and he loves us. But a key and a critical dimension, an aspect of this incredible and expansive love is the mercy of God because it says, but God who is rich in Mercy, You see, as a result of sin, as a result of humanity's sin, our sin, we deserve wrath. There's, there's no getting away from that. I know it grates some people. I know people don't like this, but I can't get away from it. Explicit teaching of God's word. That, that is what we deserve. That's what Paul has made clear as he's rewound the saints' story. But mercy... The rich mercy of God means that they no longer, that we no longer get what we thoroughly deserve and what was coming to us. You see, grace is often seen as getting what we don't deserve. The unconditional and extravagant love of God. But mercy is not getting what we absolutely do deserve. You see, because of our sin and God's inability to accommodate it, as a result of his glaring holiness and his pure character, 
His wrath is coming down the train tracks towards us. There's a tension here. But out of his rich mercy, that train is being diverted. We no longer longer get what we justifiably had coming to us. As it turns out, that train collided somewhere else. But back to the text. So the reason there is a but God, the reason these Ephesian saints are now saints is because of God's rich mercy and his great love end of. And just in case these saints in Ephesus or anybody here this morning or anybody else for that matter thinks that they've brought something to the table or that they weren't in such a bad state compared to others, Paul includes the line even when we were dead through trespasses. Please do not miss this. God, out of his rich mercy, his great love for us, even when we were dead. Dead means dead. Dead people have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, nothing to do. Dead people only live because something out of this world happens. Something, or rather someone beyond themselves, brings them back to life. They can do and do Nothing. And in the next line, Paul confirms that this is exactly what has taken place. But God, out of his great mercy, because of his great love, has made you, has made us alive together with Christ. There is the dramatic transition. We were dead, verse 1, but now we are alive. God has brought us from death to life, and we are with Christ. In other words, we share in Christ's new life. We participate in it. And then Paul inserts which for many, what for many of us is a familiar statement. You could almost describe this as a shorthand of all he's been saying up to this point. It's one of the reasons why in the RSV or the ESV you've got this bracket. Here's the shorthand of all he's been saying. For it is by grace you've been saved. Saved from death to life. Saved from the wrath of God. But not of anything. Not by a single thing you have done. It's all by grace. This unconditional love of God that is shown, that is expressed to us, has been expressed to us in Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. That's why we are made alive together with Christ. It's why, as it goes on to say, we are raised with Christ. It's why it goes on to say we sit with Christ in heavenly places. It's why in verse 7, it says the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness are shown towards us were in Christ. See, it's all about Jesus. Based on these words, in him we have redemption. We are redeemed through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Nothing to do with you. It's by grace you've been saved. And Jesus accomplished it all. As that often used acronym communicates, it's simply no grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. We are saved. We transition from dead to alive. We get it all because Jesus did it all. We are all one step from grace. Let's keep going. And and I know there's more that 
could be said. But let me pick up on those two other with Christ realities that Paul highlights. What he has said, yes, you're made alive with Christ. But secondly, note, you're raised up with Christ. Thirdly, you're seated together with Christ in the heavenly realms. Do you know something? And I know we've been saying this. Please hear this again. I'm going to keep saying it. The cosmic aspect of this is breathtaking. But let's be honest, it's really hard to fully appreciate this. But what these with Christ or together with Christ words and phrases confirm and help us to see at least glimpse, and this is incredible, that what is true of Jesus is now true of us. We have been made alive. We have been raised up. We have been seated in the heavenly realms. Let me ask you a question. Does it feel like that on a day-to-day basis? Does it? Particularly that third reality, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Is that, is that how it feels on a day-by-day basis? It's true. We believe this. That we've been made alive with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been... Sinner writes in his commentary, most Christians do not feel this is true of them day by day. We don't easily imagine that we are with Christ in the heavenly realms, but maybe what Paul says in Colossians 3 might help us here, because what does Paul say in Colossians 3? He says this, Since then, you have been raised up with Christ. Set your hearts and things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is what? It's now hidden with Christ in God. You see, part of the challenge for us is maintaining an alternative perspective in light of the fact that we have been raised with Christ. We need to lift our eyes. We need to lift our eyes. You go back to Ephesians 2 because in verse 8, Paul repeats that familiar statement just to ensure there's no confusion. You see it again in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. There it is again. Don't want you to miss this. You bring nothing to the table. But then he adds this little bit through faith. And just to avoid any sense of someone thinking, ah, is that the bit we do? Is that the part we play? Is that the input we bring? He immediately, grace and faith are gifts of God. Whether you accept them or not as gifts, whether you realize you're literally one step from grace is another slightly different issue. But in terms of everything that Paul has been describing that has to do with our salvation, our transition from being dead to being made alive, that has everything to do with God and his initiative. Everything. And so Paul finishes this epic section by further clarifying the identity of the saints in Ephesus, our identity, your identity. You are, he says, I mean, we love this, I love this. You are God's workmanship. Or you are, depending on your translation, you are God's masterpiece. You are God's handiwork. I also love that translation that says, you are God's work of art. I know I've done this before, but you know something? Sometimes some of us just need to stand and look in the mirror and say, do you know something? I am God's masterpiece. I am God's work of art. Not not because of anything I have done. Not because of anything in and of myself. but all because of grace. All because of the grace of God that has here so lavishly poured out upon us. 
The point is this. You are God's creation or you're God's new creation. Again, that's not maybe how many of us feel. It's not maybe how other people see us. But you see, because of God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness and God's love and all because of Jesus, that is who and that is what you are. You're no longer dead, you are alive. You no longer follow the world, the flesh and the devil. You're now following Jesus. You're no longer children of wrath. You're now saved. One amen. Amen. But how do you begin to respond to this? How do you begin to respond to such love, to such mercy, to such grace? Paul has hardly said a thing about how saints should live. He's hardly said, in fact, he hasn't said anything about what saints should do. He will go on to do that eventually from chapter 4. Please hang in with us in this series to hear what he goes on to say. But we need to get this, Neil, this first part, these first three chapters. But he said nothing about how they should live or or what they should do. But here and now, in the light of all he said, he puts it really simply. He says, do you know something? You have been created. You have been recreated in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. Works haven't saved you. He's made that explicitly clear in verse 9. Nothing you do, no matter how good, contributes anything to your aliveness. But as a result of being made fully alive, walk. I love this translation. Walk in them. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Grace is written all over this. That we should walk in them. God has so much good stuff for us to walk out and live out in our lives. And so to tie this all up, although I appreciate that this is vast, this is cosmic, that this requires further reflection, but as well as being one step from grace, it's right there, touching distance. We're also one step away from a good work that we can do in someone's life out of our gratitude for the incredible good work that God has done in ours. You're one step away from a good work that you can do in someone's life out of gratitude for the incredible good work that God has done in yours. And so I invite you, step on. Step in. Embrace and live your true ID. And I want to finish, and I'm going to take a wee bit of time over this. We've got a wee bit of time. We'll take a bit of time over this before we sing our last song. But I'm going to finish by simply echoing Paul. And I just want to lift out four, if you like, statements of Paul's that I hope kind of bring this all together. It's just, it's just scripture I'm quoting. Because it's so important that we stick to God's word. That we allow it to speak. And as I often pray, and I'll, I'll pray again, I may not pray it out loud, I'm praying it in myself. If I have said anything that has got in the way of God's word this morning, or said anything that is off myself, I hope and I pray that you will totally forget it, but that you will go away from here and you will engage with God's word and you'll read this again and again and again and you'll just get it. You are dead. You're alive. Saved by grace. End of. So here's your four phrases. Hi. Incomparable are the riches of God's grace. How deep 
is the great love with which God has loved us. How rich in mercy is God. What kindness has God expressed to us in Christ Jesus? Can I invite you in the silence and the quietness to just read those over and allow God's word to find a resting place in your heart.